listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hey, pharmacy community, welcome to This Week in Pharmacy. I am your host, founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Yuri. It's been a crazy week. There's a lot going on in our nation. Cannot wait to get in today's show. We have uh, two phenomenal guests that I'm so excited that are here. Um, we're going to be talking um, about uh, community pharmacy, state of the nation. That's today's um, title, and it's because... You know, it's that um, follow-up to the State of the Nation. So President Biden got to do his State of the Nation. So I think pharmacists need one as well. So guess what? I'm giving you one, even if you don't want one, because I'm going to do it anyway. But we're going to have uh, two incredible guests that we're going to be talking with. We're going to be welcoming Jack uh, Tittleman, and he is the president of Titan Group. We're going to talk about some drug diversion. He's an expert. He really has some um, really interesting stories that we're going to we're going to get into. And then um, Peter Kreckel, he's a pharmacist in charge at uh, Nickman Drug Nickman's Drug right here in Fayette County. Um, we broadcast out of Brownsville, Pennsylvania, and he is a local community pharmacist. And he is the father-in-law of one of our um, PPN hosts, the Pain Guy. Mark uh, Garofoli, um, Professor Dr. Garofoli, Professor down at WVU School of Pharmacy. So we have a lot to cover today, and I'm excited. Before we get started, I do want to talk to you about what's happening um, coming uh, later this month. Uh, Pharmacy Podcast Network, um, dragging my um, my audio technician and right hand, uh, Brady, with me. We're going to go down to Orlando and you do not have to twist my arm. Everybody that knows me, if I'm going to go to a conference and it's, and it's in Florida, count me in twice because I absolutely, I need some Florida weather. You don't understand. Pennsylvania, southwestern Pennsylvania, I think, I think we are like the third or fourth um, area region in the United States with the least amount of sunshine. And I'm a sunshine guy and we don't get enough. So I can't wait to get down to Orlando. For the 2023 Pharmacy Profit Summit Live, um, invented and, and developed and managed by the one and only Dr. Lisa Fast, part of the Pharmacy 50, 50 most influential people in pharmacy. And it goes to show you why, because she's one of those pharmacists out there literally changing the game and empowering community pharmacists. So Pharmacy Podcast Network is going to be there as press coverage. Uh, that's February 17th and 18th. I'm um, going to be uh, dedicating a lot of time to building a battle plan regarding deflecting and um, and getting around the world of the DIR fee. Um, she calls it the, the DIR fee apocalypse for 2024. New strategies, tactics um, to get uh, more out of your community pharmacy from a profit perspective. Profit is not a four-letter word, and community pharmacies that make more profit, have the ability to put that money back into their businesses and um, in their community. So we're a big um, supporter of Diversify, and we're excited about that conference, and we hope to see you there. 
A big announcement. Pharmacy Podcast Network for the second year in a row is the American Pharmacist um, Association's media partner. We will be embedded in their booth running their podcast for the APHA 2023 as we all rise together in the face of adversity. And that's going to be on March 24th through 27th. If you are going to the APHA, please come see us. We'd like to get a picture with you and celebrate pharma, the profession of pharmacy together. And there's going to be a lot going on there as well. I tell you what, the, this is a transformative year. And if you're in pharmacy and you want to take action, uh, that's an excellent conference to go to. Before we go any further, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor today. Um, it's Today we're sponsored by RMS and Climb. RMS, what a partner of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, experts in point-of-care service technology and, and point-of-care service and the, what goes into that. It's more than tech. It's the strategies. And uh, the team led by Brad Jones, uh, they're the real deals. They are out there for the survival and the viability of community pharmacy. And they put it together a podcast that we broadcast and we market and we support called CLIMB. And CLIMB stands for CARE, the C in CLIMB. And Brad wrote us that uh, CARE is the foundation of every pharmacy. And think about this, CARE for patients, staff, your community, um, learning how to build a, um, a better approach to, um, to obstacles that get, that get in your way and strengthen you as a community pharmacy. The L in CLIMB, lead. That's leadership that takes many different forms. Every member of the pharmacy uh, team has a capacity to lead. And you as the pharmacy owners out there listening, it's your job to teach them to become leaders in their own domains. And um, our staff is everything. I know my staff, goodness gracious, I couldn't do this without them. Uh, the I, innovate. Let's change the, uh, the opportunity. Let's create opportunity. Let's create innovation in a way to seize opportunity. The M stands for motivate. Uh, simply believing that we can achieve something together um, is half the battle and uh, an understanding the why. And then the B stands for balance. Um, and this is when juggling, uh, you're, you're, you're a juggling act, as you can tell you, a pharmacist out there, clinical pharmacist in, in, in hospital system, um, specialty pharmacists, um, so many of you are jugglers of so much responsibility. It's on you. Last line in defense uh, between the medication, the doctor's orders, and the patient. Um, so C-L-I-M-B, Climb Podcast. What a great partner. I want to give a shout out to them. And we also have um, a continuing sponsorship from the U.S. Farmy. U.S. Farmy is a special uh, T-shirt that we designed about three years ago. 100% of the proceeds of these T-shirts uh, for $22, includes shipping, goes out uh, to a to a local um, organization called the Dog Tag Club, and they assure that there's programs out there for vets that kind of um, center on uh, peacefulness and mindfulness uh, through all the acreage that they bought through much of the grants that they've received. And there's fishing and some hunting and walks and lots of nature-oriented things. Um, Pharmacy Podcast Network and the U.S. Pharmacy Initiative will be bringing in a component of treating behavioral health and mental health. And I'm going to try to get Duquesne University, um, Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy, and WVU School of Pharmacy involved in this at some point where we can get uh, some of the younger pharmacists, uh, student pharmacists, an understanding 
um, the struggles that veterans go through um, that have gone through a lot in serving our country. And I tell you what, I just want to give a shout out to vets. Um, before uh, we uh, bring on our guest, I do want to get into our news. And um, the first thing that I want to talk about is uh, CVS. They just keep popping back into the news. Um, I'm not sure if you heard this. Did you hear about CVS buying a company called Oak Street? Oak Street Incorporated is a healthcare network of primary care centers for older adults on Medicare. Let's listen in. CVS Health is reportedly getting close to buying Oak Street Health for about $10.5 billion in a deal that would further highlight the land grab to own the primary care market in the U.S. So this is kind of disturbing in some ways. You know how we all feel about, um, uh, you know, the, the pharmacists of CVS are our favorites. And some of the business models of CVS, um, we've um, we've been irritated about because of the lack of customer focus and patient focus and pharmacy focus and assuring that pharmacists can do their jobs and be properly staffed in their pharmacies. And when you're talking about um, CVS Health, it is on a growth um, trajectory that they're buying up um, other portions of healthcare entities. It just makes me nervous to tell you the truth. Um, you know, I, I pray that, that, that it's handled uh, and managed correctly, but CVS really needs to check itself. And I'm not afraid to say that. Um, I'm looking right at you. If any of the executives are listening in, it's not because we dislike you, because we don't, because you are part of the U.S. Farmy and, and family. Um, it's the way you treat your pharmacists and it's your um, lack of commitment to changing things. Um, in pharmacies that are considered to uh, to be understaffed. And then you shout, like last week, we talked about our shortages. There are no pharmacist shortages. Um, when, you, when, you, when you read that in the Wall Street Journal, you read that in the news and CVS and Walgreens wants you to believe that there's pharmacist shortages, there isn't. Um, it's the way that you, you're treating retail pharmacists and, and chain pharmacists. And you, you guys have to take a step back and realize that you can still make the money you can still make all that money and do the right thing. And um, and I guess that's for another show. But uh, I wanted to move to a little bit more positive news. Um, Amerisource Bergen, um, Amerisource Bergen is changing its name to Sincora. Uh, let's listen to the news bit. Amerisource Bergen plans to change its name to Sincora. The new corporate identity reflects the organization's global reach, impact, and purpose. Stephen H. Collis, Chairman, President and CEO of Amerisource Bergen, said in a statement. Yeah, let's listen to his quote. Over time, we have established ourselves as a trusted industry partner that prioritizes innovation, advocates for patient access, and advances strategic partnerships across the global pharmaceutical supply chain. To further bolster our position, we must continue to adapt and evolve within our dynamic industry as we pursue the goal of enhancing health outcomes. So, you know, there's more to a big organization like Amerisource changing its name than just the name and just the brand. It gives a co company of this size and this power an opportunity to kind of reassess and reposition 
And um, I know a lot of community pharmacists and a lot of health system pharmacists, uh, specialty, of course, and in, in that growing that has worked with Amerisource Bergen over the years that I've been in pharmacy, and they've been a great pharmacy partner. So we hope that this uh, continues to uh, lead to um, positive change. And um, we're fans of anything to do with pharmacy. So, um, uh, you know, heads up and and let's let's watch to see what Syncora does in taking it to the next level. Next on the list, I want to talk to you about Spencer Health. Um, Spencer Health is a client of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. We've done some podcasting with them. Um, Spencer is led by Tom Rhodes. And Spencer and a Pittsburgh-based company headquartered here in Pittsburgh called Paragon 360, um, they have uh, entered into a partnership together. I want to give a shout out to Pharmacy 50, one of the 50 most influential pharmacists in the nation, Dr. Chris Antipas. He is one of the founders of Paragon 360. Um, let's listen in. Spencer Health Solutions and Paragon Pharmacy 360 announced collaboration to bring innovative in-home engagement technology to high-touch pharmacy care partnership increases access to sponsored Spencer Smart Hub trademark programs for patients with complex, chronic conditions. This agreement will expand the reach of its innovative in-home digital medication adherence promoting technology with the help of Paragon's existing end-to-end -end specialty pharmacy support programs for patients living with rare, chronic, and complex conditions. You know, working with um, artificial intelligence to push out that audio um, is not perfect, but we will definitely work on that. But I like the inserts. Um, it's just another part of our creativity and trying to do things a little different. I can't stand doing things the same all the time. I get bored. Um, but back to Spencer, uh, this is an, a device that sits in the home of a patient that sure enough dispenses the medication at the right time and communicates that information back to um, the electronic health record and the pharmacy that's listed in charge. Um, there is so much opportunity for remote patient monitoring being plugged into this and better patient care for people that can't leave their home or are homebound. And the team at Paragon is digging into very specific disease states and conditions where they're going to be able to leverage this um, this technology um, with um, with Spencer. So that's the news of today. Um, I'm excited that um, uh, I have a special uh, announcement that is is heard here first on this week in pharmacy. Um, a community pharmacy multimedia partner called Mesmerize. Um, they are uh, teaming up with um, H, um, MJH Life Sciences, which is the owner of um, uh, uh, Pharmacy Times, and um, which is part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network with their PTCE, Pharmacy Times Continuing Education, and Drug Topics. And that is a huge publishing organization that has now uh, merged and, uh, with Mesmerize. Mesmerize sends out televisions to uh, community pharmacies and then pipes in community pharmacy messaging for their waiting rooms, which is quite exciting. And um, let's listen into the announcement. This week, Mesmerize was acquired by MJH Life Sciences, the largest privately held, independent, full-service medical media company in North America. You may be familiar with some of MJH's publications and media platforms such as Pharmacy Times, Drug Topics, and Total Pharmacy. 
Mesmerize has become a wholly owned subsidiary of MJH and will continue to operate as Mesmerize Media. So I'm excited. I know the guys at Mesmerize. I've worked with Ian. Uh, we've, we plan to do some collaboration. We are still on schedule to collaborate. And um, I'm excited about where that's going to lead. I do want to welcome to the show today our first guest, uh, as I had uh, touched. He's president of Titan Group, um, drug diversion experts in the, in the field of uh, our pharmacy market. Uh, Jack uh, Tittleman, I wanted to welcome to the show. Uh, welcome to This Week in Pharmacy. How are you doing? Good, That's how are you? Having me on. I'm doing fine. I'm, I'm glad uh, to I'm, have I'm, you. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not in my office. I'm in, uh, I'm in another little office, so, uh, but it, uh, it's all working out. That's fine. It's, it's amazing the power of the internet, what we can do and bringing people together and being able to talk to guests like you, which is really interesting that your team reached out to us and said, hey, would you like to have Jack on, on our show? And it fell right in line with what we were doing this week with what I call state of the nation of community pharmacy. And I want to start with you, Jack, and just uh, sharing with our, our guests and our listeners. Uh, most of them are going to be listening just through podcasting, but the ones that can see you and hear you um, are getting uh, an extra layer, I guess, and and understanding what you do. But tell us about Titan Group and and what you do throughout the nation. Okay, well, thank you. I was uh, a DEA special agent, supervisory special agent for twenty six years, and um, you know focused on everything drugs. Uh, just like you know your guys' world is drugs. My drugs was you know, my life was illegal drugs and and everything in between. Uh, near the end of my career, um, I started working a lot of pill cases, heroin and pill cases, right before I retired. So uh, it, it really sparked my interest in, you know, in the drug, the DEA drug diversion function, which I really didn't pay a lot of attention to for 25 years of my career. And then, I, you know, I wake up one day like everybody else and we're in the middle of an opioid epidemic. And I really should have known all about it as an agent with DEA. Right. So um, that, you know, that, you know, just, you know, sparked my interest in finding out, was there any, any companies out there that were a DEA compliance company that wasn't out, you know, I, I wasn't one of the guys that wanted to go work for one of the, you know, Purdue Pharma or Marisource Bergen, you know, which I have all my friends that are working there now. Um, I, you know, I've always been an empath and I wanted to, you know, to try and do something on my own, you know, working with practitioners, working with the people. Specifically, it started my, my all of my business started with veterinarians. And that is how I really got into DEA compliance and working in, you know, in the pharmacy world was with 10 veterinarians that ran into some trouble. And, you know, they, they have the same needs and wants as the pharmacy in the pharmacy world or the hospital world or the narcotic treatment world. We, we you know, Titan Group is, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead of my 26 years, but Titan Group is a group of former DEA agents, diversion investigators, state investigators that work for the end, the, pretty much the end users of DEA registrations, the pharmacists, the veterinarians, um, you know, and we, and we, we do a lot of training and education in those, in those, in those fields. But uh, the most important thing that we do is a combination of DEA mock audits, inspections that all emulate exactly what DEA is looking for. Mm-hmm. And what we've what we've run into recently, I'd say the past year is the the thing we're going to talk about today is is this crush of man, of manufacturers and distributor actions against community pharmacists, you know, by you know by, by cutting off or, or limiting their their ability to buy controlled substances for reasons unknown. 
Mm -hmm. Right. Or there'll be some reasons that just, you know, make no sense to anyone until we dive in and, and, and do our, you know, do, and, and do a deep dive gap analysis to find out it's one patient. But because of the way our, you know, our world works, we, we make crazy swings when we make decisions. And, you know, so, you know, we're, we're, uh, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll get into more about what, what that, you know, what that entails. But, you know, myself, uh, you know, spent 26 years with DEA, you know, everywhere you can imagine, you know, in the United States, I was in five different offices, traveled the world. And um, since 2015, I've uh, been in 36 states uh, working in, like I said, 12 different industries that have DEA registration. So um, there's pretty much nothing under the sun when it comes to Titan Group or the guys that, you know, that work with me that, that they haven't seen or, uh, or we don't have an answer to. So. I like, of, I like the thought of preparing our community pharmacy owners for um, for inspection and doing a mock inspection so that you can take them through the possibility of something being picked up by the DEA causing fines or being shut down or something so that they can stay ahead of it and that they can learn from you and then turn that back into compliancy and in, in putting some of those uh, standards back into, I forget what the manuals call that that you kind of have to have on file, probably yep. policy and procedures. Yep. But can you kind of go into how you help community pharmacies uh, prepare? Sure. So you, you just describe what we want everybody to do. We want them to be proactive in their, in their vision of their compliance. And it rarely happens. Uh, you know, I, I would say 20% of our business is, is someone being proactive, is calling us. Most of the times, the ones that are proactive are the ones that can't sleep anymore at night. They know something's brewing. They just don't know. They don't have time. They don't have the expertise. So, you know, we do a very deep dive in, in, into the records. I mean, we are, when it comes to working, you know, you know, proactively with the group, we are going, you know, most of the time we try to do the DEA mock inspection with the team. We don't want the team to know we're coming. We want to see it. We want to see the patient the way it is. You know, it's like someone says, oh, my arm hurts. And then they show up and the arm hurt, doesn't hurt anymore. Well, we want to see everything as is. And then, look, every nobody's perfect. There's always issues. But it's our job to find, you know, whatever's out there and come up with a corrective action, put that in place. Look, if there's something we have to go ahead and report to the DEA, we'll do it. But we want to make sure that we're not calling a bomb strike in, on ourselves every single time. So, you know. <laughs> Part of a part of what we 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 think what we know is one of the most important things for DEA right now is exactly what you said um, just a few minutes ago was uh, a policy and procedure manual, controlled substance policy and procedure manual, which dictates every step of the way that of your understanding of your supply chain. It has to go from ordering to receiving to inventory, and then everything about your location, security, personnel. If we can put those things together have them pre-populated, have everybody trained, have gone through a series of, of, uh, of, um, of inspections and audits and reconciliations. We can do all that in about a three-month period. At that point, there's, we've had nobody have, uh, that we've worked with have uh, any significant fine. And when I say significant, maybe something over $5,000, something that came, that came to us that was there, was nothing we could do about. Um, we have dealt with, you know, probably over 50 DEA interactions in the past probably year that we've been dealing with and we had no nothing more than the LOA. So that's a slap on the wrist. We'll take that slap on the wrist every day of the week and move on. So um, the most important thing that you know if we can you know we can get out there is 
that, you know, training is great for, we want to train every pharmacist out there, you know, what's the correct way to, you know, to handle your drugs, you know, how, how to, you know, how to do inventories, what, you know, how to put things together that the DEA is really going to be looking for. But if we're not training the staff along with that, giving them the tools to help, you know, to help you succeed and be compliant, you know, then, then we're kind of, you know, just moving ourselves in one place. So what, you know, we, we pride ourselves that, you know, it's, we try and do as much training as we can with the pharmacy staff. You know, if we're in a hospital, it's a hospital pharmacy staff we're working with. You know, so we're not, we don't just work, you know, with, although we love working with community pharmacy, I'm glad to hear the word community pharmacy because for some reason I'm hearing it as independent pharmacy. Yeah. And that, to me, that's, that's, it's very, it's, it's, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't give the same feeling because one of the, when, when we're defending some of these pharmacies that have gotten in trouble lately, I say getting, gotten in trouble in the eyes of the distributors and the manufacturers, they're doing something you know, that's put the red flags up. Um, they don't understand what they've done to that community pharmacy when they've shut their shut them down from awarding control substances, right? Um, you know, I'm in the inner city. I'm in Newark, New Jersey, and I'm in a, an independent pharmacy, which is so vital to the two housing projects that it sits right in, right? The, and I sat there for a day and watched this pharmacist know everybody's first name when they walked in, and they all knew his first name. He took care of, he knew, and there, this man had done nothing wrong except except take care of his, one of his patients, you know? So, and that, that took a fight, you know? And, and, and us trying to explain to one of the big three that you just can't cut someone off from ordering Suboxone when you've got 50 people that rely on that Suboxone, right? right? I go, that's gonna put people right back to the street. So, you know, so, 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 you know unfortunately, so, you know, some at the higher levels, they have this myopic vision of, of what, they, what they want the world to look like in their vision and, and try and impose those rules on, you know, on something that we're seeing is just, look, you know, they need to really get out like they used to, you know, if they don't have time and that's the big problem and, 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 and work like we are with the pharmacies, work with the teams so that they can get a good feel for what the temperature is out there. Because I'm the only one right now and a couple other guys that are, that are really out there working, you know, outside of some lawyers, that are constantly, you know, having conversations with the big three on this on this issue. So, uh, I, I don't see it getting any better anytime soon and, and, until they either relax their red flag computers, which I don't see that happening, you know, or something else changes. So I know that there was a recent article in the Guardian, and it was titled "The Worst It's Ever uh, Been: A Mysterious U.S. Adderall Shortage Puts ADHD Patients at Risk," and how that. Uh, the DEA is kind of uh, part of the oversight in reverse in finding out, you know, what is the purpose of such a um, a, a missing um, substance that's needed by so many. Um, I think of you in the data that you're collecting with Titan. How much of an opportunity do you have to educate the DEA instead of educating, per se, the uh, community pharmacy owner? Uh, which is so important. That's your primary job to keep them safe, to keep them compliant. But talk to us about, have you ever had an opportunity in reversing that flow of data and being able to really educate and help the DEA? So thank, that, that, uh, thank you for bringing that up. And that has been one of the most important part of my job recently is communicating back with the C-suite members of DEA right now. 
the the DEA agents that are in charge of DEA are three of them were my former junior agents when I was in the New York Field Division. Um, the agent that is running the diversion control section of DEA, I probably talk to once a week. And I am bringing up everything I see, every inconsistency I see, to him, straight to him. And, and, and it goes, it'll be as, as mundane as this, and it's not mundane. I'll have a diversion investigator impose his will on us on the West Coast. And I'll, the example is I'm in a methadone clinic, and this has to do with overfill that comes in the methadone bottles. There's always some, and, and there has been some interpretation of, 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 of what that overfill should be and percentages, and we could spend a whole day on that. But, you know, we, I'm positive we've cracked the code on how to deal with overfill. I know we've cracked the code. We've come up with, we've come up with a repeatable thing that has given us the same results every time. But DEA doesn't, didn't understand that. So I, I'm, being, I'm being punished in the West Coast. But then I have a diversion investigator in, in South Carolina who says, I love it. It's perfect. So that, of course, I'm going to call DEA and say, hey, we can't, this, you can't do this. You know, we're taxpayers. You can't, you, you can't treat us this way. You, know, you, you can't make the rules up as you're going. And those are things they would never hear from before. They would never hear that. It would never make it to them. So um, I am doing my best to educate them, and they are loving it. They want it. They're, they, you know, I actually missed a call the other day and they kept texting me because they had a meeting. They wanted to know more and more, you know, what I'm telling them from the field that's not coming from diversion investigators or agents. So, yes, I am. Um, I've, I've got that dialogue open and I'm not going to I'm going to keep it open as long as I can. That's awesome. We have to have you back, Jack, because I have a lot more to dig in with DSA, DEASA and a bunch of other uh, track and trace questions that I think we can pull you into. But I thank you for being on This Week in Pharmacy with us, and um, we have to have you back. You're great. And if anybody needs to get a hold of us, they can go to, uh, you know, go to our website, you know, titangroupdea.com. We're going to have that in our show notes, Titan Group. You said titangroup.com? Titangroupdea.com. Titangroupdea.com. We'll actually tweet that out as well. Jack, thank you. You're welcome. Hey, when we return, we're going to have a very special guest, somebody from uh, Fayette County, Pennsylvania, right here in my backyard, uh, Peter Kreckel, pharmacist in charge at Nickman Drug. Nickman's Drug. Uh, we'll be right back. We are back this week in pharmacy. Um, I have in the studio with me, Peter Kreckel. I was, I was saying, Pete, um, one of my favorite people in pharmacy um, is your um, son-in-law. Uh, absolutely. My son-in-law, <laughs> Dr. Mark Carofoli. And well, my most favorite is my wife, Denise, <laughs> uh, also a pharmacist, fellow lab partner from the class of 81 at the University of Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy. And of course, my daughter, Gretchen, uh, Mark's wife. So yeah, we have all four of us and we live on the first two houses on Garden Lane. So uh, we're real close and we really love it a lot. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a pharmacy because you guys are deep into pharmacy. And 
I find it really interesting that each of you have a, a very specific subject matter expertise and talking with your wife and Gretchen and, and Mark and each of you coming together. I can only imagine. I said to Mark, I want to come to Christmas dinner and just stand back and listen to a bunch of pharmacists nerd out. Well, if you would come to Christmas dinner, first of all, my wife's a fabulous cook, so you're invited already. <laughs> She'd love to have you. And uh, yeah, uh, my wife's expertise definitely is taking care of uh, the underserved people. Uh, she worked at Center Volunteers in Medicine and State College for a long time, helped out people that truly needed it, Gretchen's the immunization queen. And of course, my son-in-law, Mark, he's on your podcast uh, with the pain guy. The pain guy. So, and me, I kind, kind of like uh, a little bit of everything. I've practiced community pharmacy for 42 years. I taught at St. Francis University in the physician assistant program for 16 years. I've always worked independent pharmacy. And so I've had a really uh, fun career doing all that. I also do a lot of online teaching uh, for some of the uh, continuing education providers. And yes, even uh, drug topics. I write their closing column for them, one of your partners. Mm -hmm. yep. So uh, really uh, enjoy that as well. And that's what I want to want to tell our pharmacists, you need to get engaged. You know, being on that calendar, and I've been on that calendar, you know, 10 hours a day, uh, many, many days, I feel your pain uh, in my legs as well as my heart. Uh, so I do uh, feel that, but you need to get involved. We've got to make this profession better. I have practiced for 42 years and I have seen the very, very best years of this profession and we need to get them returned. And that's the beauty of something like this pharmacy podcast network, where we're able to at least exchange ideas and share ideas and talk about what we need to do to make things better. Absolutely. And it's why we partner with state organizations. We've partnered with the Pennsylvania Pharmacists Association uh, the California Pharmacists Association, the Florida Pharmacists Association, where we want to empower their programs and their communications. And, um, you know, pharmacists didn't go to school to market themselves. They didn't go to school for broadcasting, even though there's a lot of pharmacists out there that do a phenomenal job in getting their content out. But the whole reason for this network is to empower the voices who are really innovating pharmacy. I do not want to stand still. I don't want to be. When I entered pharmacy, uh, Pete, in 2004, it was much different than it is today. And we know that payer um, mechanisms are changing to get pharmacists paid for certain things that they weren't paid for before. Um, testing is coming up, point of care testing, pharmacogenomics, psychedelics, consulting. And then, of course, we're going to talk a little bit about opioid use uh, disorder and how pharmacists have not been leveraged properly in that condition and disease state and what it did in rampant, rampant throughout the nation. Um, but I kind of want to defer back to you because not only do you have a story to share, but you have a pedigree in really understanding how um, OUD, opioid use disorder, impacts a a community. I've seen this for a very long time. And I think here in Fayette County in Pennsylvania, we're one of the state's poorest counties. And so we do have a substance use disorder for sure. Uh, I actually took courses up at Clarion University uh, for a certificate of substance use uh, specialist. And uh, I learned a lot there. And but most of what I've learned is really on the bench talking to those patients when they come in and uh, helping them understand, you know, what 
they have. Substance use disorder is really a mental health disorder, and that's how I approach it. What made them stick that needle in their arm the first time? We're not trained psychiatrists. I know that. But I think if we can help our patients, you know, get the medications they need and to do things safely, we dispense a lot of naloxone at Nickman's Drugstore. Our owner, Jim Nickman, is very passionate. When he, The day he hired me, he said, I want you to help my people in Fayette County. And so we got very aggressive dispensing naloxone on these standing orders. Uh, yesterday, I think I kicked out at least 10 or 12 uh, cloxados uh, just to be able to have a higher degree of protection for our people with opioid use disorder. And these are all things that we can engage our patients in uh, because there's not yet one of my substance use disorder patients said they were glad they were. They were in a predicament like that. They're reaching out for help. And that's where we community pharmacists can truly make a difference. I always say I take my judge's robe off when I'm in the parking lot and I put on my white lab coat and that is two different people, whether how you feel about it on the outside. But when you come to that bench in a white lab coat, you're expected to really take good care of your patients. That's uh, good to hear. And it and it's the heart of a community pharmacist and understanding what they need. So much of what you see is a domino effect of not only impacting the patient, but impacting the patient's children, their family, their friends, people that they live with. And then, of course, the communities you know, the impact to the community of what that addiction is doing to the rest of the community. And I think that's where uh, funding comes in to be a little bit more specific. And I agree with you. When I say community pharmacists, pharmacists in general should become more involved, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about replacement of any of the team members. We have the primary care physician, we have the counselor, sometimes you have a nurse that's involved, uh, the MAT centers, I'm talking about inserting pharmacists to understand the pharmacological happenings of what's going on in that patient system. And then, of course, comorbidity, where you know that there's something else happening in that patient's life that is uh, either preventing treatment from moving forward or complicating treatment. Absolutely. And, you know, when we just see the effects of opioids just across the board, on our nation and on our people, but we always have to keep one thing in mind in the world of pharmacy. I appreciate the DEA's efforts to control diversion, but the bottom line is heroin is always gonna be cheaper than the pills that we're going to be dispensing. And we always have to look at that as well. Uh, heroin is readily available, heroin is cheaper. And I think the more that the DEA and these organizations try to knuckle down on the independent community pharmacists or even the chain pharmacies, there's always going to be something else. I think if we can continue to use things like buprenorphine for substance use disorder, somebody from the DEA, I would love the explanation as to why plain buprenorphine eight milligrams is such a bad idea, but when mixed with naloxone is okay. We're under those types of pressures all the time. We had a, a, a visitor about uh, our tramadol purchases. We bought three bottles of tramadol, 100 milligrams, and someone from the wholesaler contacted us. There are much bigger fish to fry than 90 tramadol, 100 milligrams out there. And, and this is why I appreciate Jack being on your program and saying, hey, I can help you guys. Because sometimes the rules that we're playing by, as Jack alluded to, 
you know, or sandlot baseball. Remember playing as a kid? Well, if the ball goes in Frank's garden, it was an automatic out. But if it hit a tomato plant and there were tomatoes on it, then the game was over and everybody (laughs) ran. So that's what I think happens so often in enforcement is people just kind of, well, let's make up a rule uh, that's convenient at that time. And we need to get together and see that we're really all on the same team. You know, the Pittsburgh Pirates isn't all pitchers and it's not all catchers. It takes a team of different specialists, maybe wearing the same uniform to get the best result. Yep. Yeah. And I, I think of the challenges that that you're going through as pharmacists and not just our community pharmacists, but our health system pharmacists who uh, from state to state will have different challenges and different regulations than another state, depending on restriction or depending on um, writing of a prescription for seven days or 30 days or 90 days or whatever it is. It's from my pers- my perspective of how much I read and how much I research, there's not enough initial consultation with a physician, pharmacist, patient team even a pain specialist team to develop policy and stop rubber stamping policy. So policy should be um, a common denominator for every health system, every pharmacist, every pharmacy. Sure, for for the for the public safety, obviously. But when you're starting to talk about specific pain management or specific things that are happening in a patient's life we really should be leaving it to the physician and pharmacy te- pharmacist teams to make the decisions about dispensing. And- Absolutely. And let's make it all on a federal level. Yeah. Gab- gabapentin is controlled in West Virginia, but it's not in Pennsylvania. You know, I cross that line between Pennsylvania and West Virginia every day. I don't know what the difference is, why gabapentin's controlled when I cross the line and it's not controlled before that. It just doesn't make any sense. And, and I think that we're seeing the frustration in the community pharmacists today because very few people want to do it. If I could just take a minute and read something. Yes. This is a, a friend of mine uh, had this posted. I'm not going to read the entire paragraph. It's kind of long. But basically, he says he has a wife who was on pain medications four times a day. The prescription was sent to Walgreens. This is in Florida. Uh, The day that she's going to run out of the pills, she calls Walgreens and requests a refill to to get it ready. It gets ready. He gets a text at 12.03 saying, hey, it's ready to go. Come pick it up. He doesn't get there till 1240 that day, 40 minutes later, he goes to the door and says the pharmacy is temporarily closed. The website and the apps show that the pharmacy is open from nine to nine and that the pharmacist takes a half an hour lunch break. He goes up to the counter and they they said, no one's here. We don't have anyone to take care of you till tomorrow at nine o'clock. So she has to wait till nine o'clock the next morning to get her pain medications because, um, because there wasn't a pharmacist on duty. So, Every problem that we've talked about today is there. The DEA oversight, you can't get your pills two days early. You can only get them one day early. And then it's the the wholesalers. And then it's the big chains. And then it comes down to the patient. Has to suffer a whole day without three doses of her pain medication because they don't have enough pharmacists. I've been doing this for 42 years, and I've seen the very best of community pharmacy. And, and I think each day passes, it gets a little worse. It's no surprise. You know, there's a pharmacist shortage. Who's counting? Let's be realistic. Here's the list from the NABP. There's 142 schools of pharmacy. When Denise and I graduated in 1981, there were 42 
there were 72 schools of pharmacy. There's twice as many schools of pharmacy in my career as when I started. Okay, 72 up to 170, uh, up to 142. It's doubled. We've we've had more pharmacy graduates, but you know what? Nobody wants to do what I'm doing for a living. Nobody wants to do what the community pharmacist is doing. Rite Aid is offering a package. It's unbelievable. They're out in one uh, town in Pennsylvania. They're offering $160,000 student loan forgiveness, 12,500 moving expenses, and a $40,000 sign-on bonus. That is how desperate they are. I got a better idea. I'm cheap. My wife will tell you that. I got a better idea. Why don't you put your... $15 to $20 an hour technicians in the store, make this the good profession that it used to be. And you won't be having to throw out hundreds of thousands of dollars in sign on bonuses. Absolutely. Community pharmacy today is entirely the fault of the major chains. They started this problem. They had plenty of help from academia in increasing the numbers of pharmacy schools and making more pharmacists available. And now all of a sudden, nobody wants to do community pharmacy and uh, things are not looking good. I hope it reverses. And and I think the only way it's going to reverse is when the big four, Walgreens, Rite Aid, CVS, and... uh, the other four and Rite Aid, all those four decide that we're going to staff everything adequately, use good common sense measures to make sure that the pharmacist is free enough. If you see a pharmacist typing on a computer, if you see a pharmacist answering the phone on the first couple of rings, and if you see a pharmacist counting pills, that's a failure. Okay. I did not go to pharmacy school to type. I did not go to pharmacy school to count to 120, even though I'm pretty good at it. And I did not go to pharmacy school to answer a phone on the first string to say what time Yun's close. Yun's is, of course, yes. we don't need to translate for them, do we? No, no. they're going to just have to put up with the Yun's. <laughs> what time Yun's close? Okay. These are all things that you can have a $20 an hour well-paid technician do so your pharmacist can get out there and do their job and take care of people. And if anybody from the big four or the DEA wants to contact me, I'm available. <laughs> yeah, if anybody, if, if, the, if the wholesalers, if, um, if Roz from Walgreens or Karen from CVS want to call in and, and talk about the true problems, I'm going to move upstream. I think the problem starts with the payment models and not necessarily the chains because the chains are reacting to the commodity-driven push that the PBMs have placed our pharmacy industry on. They've hijacked the pharmacy industry based on their payment models and based on their um, their profit, uh, their eyes rolling back in their heads and, and collecting and sucking up all this profit. And if they were to take that money and start putting it back into pharmacy care and pharmacy strategy, um, they could actually do more uh, development and or make the same money or sometimes maybe even more. And here's what I'm thinking. In the busy pharmacies, the busiest pharmacies in the nation, probably in New York City, I would guess, the CVS, for example, why in the world don't you have X number of pharmacists, depending on how many counts per day are coming in, obviously, and then tech ratio, which needs to be redesigned, but then also have a pharmacist out in the aisles where the patients are actually walking around, talking to them about DME, talking about bandages, talking to them about over-the-counter, talking about supplements and vitamins, mm-hmm. and that you have a pharmacist at the bench, a pharmacist in the aisles, 
And then those two pharmacists over an eight hour period gets to switch places to give each other relief because it's always nice to stretch your legs, move around, go talk to people, um, be a little bit more um, uh, of a of a business development kind of entity pharmacy where you're really saying, hey, um, hey, I see you're in the um, supplement aisle. Uh, what are you looking at? Oh, I'm trying to get more protein. I started a new um, a, a new exercise regimen. Oh, come on over here. We have this new sale on this uh, protein powder. Blah blah blah. You, if you took a farm D and you put them out into the aisle, engaging the patients constantly, you could literally sell more product, in my opinion. And then, therefore, you'd be able to make up the salary needed in order to cover that pharmacist while supporting another pharmacist. So you literally have two pharmacists on staff at all times. Okay, and and I can agree with that. But what about in the individual? community pharmacy, like we have mostly in Fayette County. Uh, yes, the reimbursement model needs to be redefined, but not to be terribly argumentative. How much money did Roz make last year? A lot. Yeah, she yeah. was, what, $24 million? Larry Merlot was at $36 million yeah. uh, like four or five years ago. Does anybody need $36 million a year as a salary? How many technicians? I wrote about it in drug topics. <laughs> how, how many technicians could you buy? How many more staff pharmacists? As much as the payment model is bad, I get that. But CVS just bought somebody for a couple billion dollars. Yep. Don't tell me there's not enough money there for technicians when they're buying sure. up companies, when Roz is making what she is, when Karen's making what she is at Rite Aid, and all of these people. Uh, there's plenty of money. They're not willing to fund the stores. They're, tr they're beating the pharmacists into the ground. And I think the pharmacists have said, enough, I'm done with it. There yeah. is no pharmacist shortage. We've got 70 more schools of pharmacy than we had when I graduated. Here's another problem too. The National Association of Boards of Pharmacy, uh, we only had 78% pass rate. 78% pass rate on the NAPLEX exam. What does that tell you? Tells you Zoom doesn't work. <laughs> Zoom works great for what you're doing. Yeah. I can't Zoom in my job because I got to be there at Nickman's in Lamont Furnace on Monday. But the bottom line is Zoom has a great place, but education of College students is not one of them. And I've talked to some of the people even in academia at the University of Pittsburgh. They felt there was enough cheating on the exams. That's why the kids don't want to go back to the classroom. And then what happens is when you go take this exam, it ain't zoomed in. And one out of four failed. Yeah. Don't tell me our academia is in that bad a shape that when I graduated pharmacy school, we had one girl in our class fail and her dad had died like the previous week. Okay. Pretty understandable that she was uh, traumatized. But the bottom line is folks, we need to get this profession together. And the very rock of this profession is community pharmacy. True. That is the rock. When you ask a person, what's a pharmacist do? They're thinking about what I do, not what the rest of my family does. Okay? <laughs> yeah, I'm the guy, and I mean, I have the greatest respect for everything Gretchen and Mark and Denise do. But when you talk to the average person on the average street in the average Fayette County, they're going to say, oh, a pharmacist is the guy that wears a white coat and tells me I can't get my pills filled because the insurance company denied it. <laughs> yes. And it's so, it's so um, frustrating for me knowing that it's the patient standing at the counter thinking that it's the pharmacist's fault or the pharmacy's fault of why things have changed, why their copay has changed or why the pricing has changed. 
thinking that it has something to do when it has nothing to do with them. It has to do with the PBM models. It has to do with the algorithm they set up, um, the non-medical switching or whatever that they're doing, which doesn't come back to healthcare. It's all profit driven. So, you know, we are in the midst of a PBM reform. We have uh, pharmacy podcast network has a, a show called PBM reform and it's all about podcast. It's all podcasting about everything to do with PBM reform. Um, amazing people like Antonio Chacho, who was one of the pharmacy 50 uh, most influential people in pharmacy because of all of his work dissecting the PBMs and what that means for healthcare, what that means for pharmacy care. We are in a new age coming where there is going to be a tremendous amount of pharmacists that are going to be doing less and less dispensing and be doing more and more consulting taking a treatment plan and program from a physician and running with it, running with blood disorders, running with cancer, running with so many things that are happening with patients that need a pharmacist to follow treatment and pivot and make changes along the way in, in, in treatment. We need to change a model that we have a pharmacist in every general mm -hmm. family practitioner's office. That's so for sure. I did two uh, for the past like seven years of my career before we moved down here. I worked at uh, Dr. Zane Gates' office in Altoona, Pennsylvania. And after I was there two days a week, he hired other pharmacists so that he had a pharmacist there all five days a week. I diagnosed diabetes, nephrogenic, lithium-induced uh, nephrogenic diabetes insipidus in a patient by simply telling them they need to drink more water. And I, I talked to the patient and the caregiver, and what they said was, uh, well, yeah, he's drinking a lot, or he's, he drinks like two liters of water at a time. I said, ooh, that's not good. When we're thinking lithium toxicities, we're thinking, you know, renal. And uh, so they did the workup on him. And just by talking and a simple consultation, it's summertime, drink lots of water with your lithium, it turned into a diagnosis of lithium-induced nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. That's how important we are in the community pharmacy. And that's how important we are in the doctor's offices. Because what made me so good in the doctor's office and made me so good at St. Francis when I was teaching was the fact that I was still practicing as a pharmacist and seeing those things on a day-to-day -day basis. It's real easy to make rules and say, you should do this, you should do that. But until you put on these ugly SAS shoes like I wear and, uh, and, and work as a community pharmacist, you really have no business making rules and regulations and ideas without participating and see what works and what doesn't. Some of these payment models uh, we have to get better software technology. Uh, one of the things that uh, frustrates me is just to do an e-care plan on some of these databases. It takes more time to actually enter the data into the system <laughs> than it does to consult the patient. Yeah. That needs to be fixed, too. Have your computer people get on that. Yeah, I'll have, I'll have them get on it. But, yeah, there's a lot of discussion between the electronic health record companies and the pharmacy management uh, companies that they're saying, whoa, whoa. Why is there so much data intensity where we could literally make a track of treatment and a next step of treatment much more automated based on the initial data that's put in by the physician so that the pharmacist can become, once again, much more consultative than just taking an order and executing an order because that's not what pharmacy is. Pharmacy is about the pivot and about the safety of the patient. So if things have to change along the way in a chronic condition, it's up to the pharmacist sometimes to uncover the mystery of what's happening with that patient and then communicate that back to the physician so that the team can actually make changes in the patient's care. 
Absolutely. Because when I would work at uh, Dr. Gates' office, uh, I said, I look at a patient with an entirely different set of eyes than does the doctor. The doctor's looking at all the lab values and all of these types of things. And we have access to that. But I looked at it as the med list. And here's what I see on it. And I uncovered virtually two or three times a day, I would uncover something on a med list that it's like, oh, this just isn't right. Go out and talk to the doctor, then go out and talk to the PA and and get it fixed. And I was a huge asset to them and they really did appreciate it. And I worked with the physician assistant. I'd see the patient before the doctor or the PA would, and I would come out, make a recommendation and they'd always take it. And uh, just even uh, drugs and half-lives. Uh, how many of your patients, a pharmacist, how many times do you dispense uh, Cozar or Losartan? Every day it's in your fast-moving section. That is the shortest acting angiotensin receptor blocker we have on our shelves. I take Herbisartan because you know why? Because I understand half-lives as you do too. But because Cozar was the first generic approved because it was Cozar was the first ARB that was available. That's what everybody uses because the PBMs, the insurance <laughs> companies, they drove it. They said, this is all we're going to pay for. This is all we're going to pay for. This is all we're going to pay for. Now that's ingrained in everybody's habits, but it's the worst possible drug. It has a half-life of two hours. You take your Losartan in the morning at six o'clock in the morning, and by three o'clock in the afternoon, you have less than 3% of that dose in you. Guess when you're going to have a stroke? Four o'clock in the morning when you're totally unprotected. Me, I take my Herbisartan because it has a 16-hour half-life. I'm covered all day long, all day strong. <laughs> right from the pharmacist's mouth, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, um, it has been an absolute pleasure having you be part of this. I was so thankful that you came to our open house when you and Mark and the team and, and Dr. Petros came up from WVU. It meant a lot to me. But having you back in the studio and actually talking with us about the state of the nation of community pharmacy, I want to have you back. And we got we to gotta go from the in-studio. This is studio number one. We got to take this to studio number two with a bunch of pharmacists in the room and actually have roundtable discussions. Yeah, we could do that. I can, I can bring another one for sure. Uh, we could always bring Mrs. Crackle along. She'd love to participate. See? And I do think uh, we need to look at that. Uh, more pharmacists together. As, as much as you don't want it to turn into a grape fest, and it probably will, we have a lot to complain about. But the bottom line is this is a fabulous profession. And working with patients and doing patient care gives me satisfaction like nothing else possibly could in my career. I'm glad I did it 42 years ago. Not only did I get a beautiful wife out of the deal, but I've had 42 and a half wonderful years of being a pharmacist. Well, you, you're not ready to hang up your uh, your uh, bowl and pestle yet. So we, yet. Have, we have more for you to do and more for you to come back. But um, Peter Kreckel, uh, Nickman's Drugs, um, thank you so much for being part of This Week in Pharmacy. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. So I tell you what, we're excited. Um, we have a great show next week. It's going to be our Hello, uh, Halloween, listen to me, Valentine's Day special with the one and only the Sex Farm D. That's Dr. Nadia Archambault, um, Sex Farm D. Uh, what a catchy name and you'll never forget it. But look her up uh, on LinkedIn, connect with her on LinkedIn. And listen, we love pharmacists. We love pharmacy technicians. If there is anything the Pharmacy Podcast Network and This Week in Pharmacy can ever do in advocating for you or bringing more light to something, please send us a message. We can be reached at my email address is publisher at pharmacypodcast.com. Once again, that is publisher at pharmacypodcast.com. 
www.pharmacyhelpdesk.com. That was This Week in Pharmacy.